I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Our websites are clark.com and clarkdeals.com. So there's something that's very interesting in a time of extreme alienation in U.S. society and intense division uh, that people feel depending on whether they are a Republican or a Democrat. But there's a new USA Today survey that finds that Americans have some things that they very much feel in common, whether they're Republicans, Democrats, or independents. And this survey data is very interesting in terms of what people are feeling about the economy and the direction we're going. And one thing that is clear and was runaway in the survey data is that Republicans, Democrats, and independents overwhelmingly support raising the federal minimum wage. And the numbers are extreme for any survey today with the polarization that there would be similarity in how people responded to the question and that three-quarters of Americans support raising the minimum wage, which is a significant increase even from just a year ago. So this data has been going steadily up as the federal minimum wage has stayed where it's been for a long, long time, $7.00. 25 cents an hour and I remember probably five six years ago when that um, labor political movement started for a $15 an hour minimum wage I was like wow is anybody going to support that and it's been something that I've been pretty much tone deaf on is how people feel about making sure that the minimum wage does what it was originally intended, which is to allow somebody to earn enough to pay for life's basics, which obviously you can't do on seven twenty-five an hour. The minimum wage was last raised in two thousand nine, so when there's that much consensus for it, uh, even the corporate interests that bottle up the Congress are going to end up having to agree to some level of increase in the minimum wage. Now, another area where there was extremely strong support, three-quarters of Americans um, across the political spectrum and very little difference, again, uh, among Republicans, Democrats, and independents, was about making sure that there's child care available for what is referred to as high-quality, affordable child care, which, if you think about it, that is a very, very traditionally liberal position, and there was overwhelming support across the political spectrum for uh, doing whatever public policy would create affordable child care. The numbers were so strong on this that I'm sure it's at least partially pandemic-related, because there are so many people who've had kids who 
whose schools have remained um, digital, uh, remote, whatever, Zoom, what you know, whatever we call this online learning kind of thing that's going on, or hybrid models where the kids are in school maybe as little as two days a week in person, three days a week online, it's played havoc with people's ability to work. And the polling shows overwhelmingly that people want government involvement in creating um, some form of program for affordable child care. And I don't know where that ends up going in the political process, but it was something that was very stark and clear in the polling. You know, one thing also that is clear is that the traditional lines in terms of economics of liberal and conservative have not really been in play since the Great Recession started in 2007, that there's been a shift in people's attitudes based on the enormous economic disruption of the Great Recession, that people are more interested in government being involved in social services in ways that people generally did not want if they were people who would consider themselves or wore the label of being conservative. Now, conservative and liberal see eye to eye on things involving certain phases of the economy, and ultimately that will move what happens in terms of public policy at the states and nationally. It's time for your questions you posted for me at clark.com slash ask. Producers Kim and Joel alternate with Kim up first. All right, Clark, first up today is Drusilla from California. And Drusilla says, please explain how wealthy people like the president cannot have to pay income tax. I've been doing taxes myself for decades and I still can't figure it out. Oh, so we're going to go fully political right now. It seemed like the theme. All right. So let me see if I can do this in a way that is uh, from an economic perspective and stay out of the political wars going on in the country. So uh, the New York Times reported and uh, the president has not denied that uh, the president did not pay taxes in basically two out of three years over the last decade and a half. And in 2016 and 2017, I think it is, paid roughly 700 or so dollars in federal tax. That's the allegation. So here's the thing. Tax policy in the United States is set up where those who are wealthier, more sophisticated, can engage in various tax planning strategies that allow them to pay very low tax rates. What Warren Buffett referred to years ago is a situation where he pays a lower tax rate than his secretary. And from Warren Buffett's perspective, that was not okay. And so people who are very heavily invested in real estate as an active profession, meaning that that's what they do for a living, have a tax code that is incredibly favorable to them, that allows them to earn a great deal of income and avoid paying any tax on it. 
And so uh, this idea that if you have your income based on investments or you have your income based on real estate allows you to avoid paying uh, a normal amount of tax and the more money you make, the less you can end up paying is something that is going to cause uh, resentment in the economy. Uh, you know, the as far as this election, people are pretty frozen in place who they're supporting in this election. So I don't expect anything involving the New York Times information to change people's support or opposition to President Trump. But it does bring up the conversation about are there changes we need to make in how we do taxation in the United States? And it's why I have forever been obsessed with us having a modified flat income tax, where regardless of your source of income, that a certain amount of tax has to be paid is a way of preventing people who are sophisticated, who can hire the accounting firms, who can get preferential items passed through the Congress that people based on influence and wealth cannot avoid paying tax. And that's something I feel would reduce a lot of the corruption in Washington if we reduce the ability to influence the tax code based on which politician you have the ear of and have donated money to. So I hope that is uh, as neutral a way of explaining how it is that very wealthy individuals and particularly investors are able to avoid paying a reasonable amount of federal tax versus their income. Joel? Clark Chris in Georgia says, I keep getting emails, texts, and calls about joining something called Forsage Tron. It's some sort of cryptocurrency. It, it, that's what it looks like, at least. Do you know anything about this? Is it legitimate? It kind of feels like a scam, considering they want $1,000 up front to get started. So as to whether or not this is a scam, I, I can't say. You know, Calling something a scam has to be something that's been uh, found to be so by legal authorities. But the idea of any of these unknown cryptocurrencies being anything other than highly speculative or crossing into a scheme or scam is certain. I mean, the, the cryptocurrency, even legitimate, has not really worked out as a real alternative non-governmental money. And so you take the one that's considered to be the most successful Bitcoin, it is a complete failure as a source of currency and has been only a speculative vehicle. So getting involved in anything like this is kind of the equivalent of going to a casino, and it's just your choice if you want to play in that. And because of the Wild West nature of the cryptocurrencies, you do have a great chance that many of them are going to turn out just to be out-and-out -out scams. Kim? Brian in North Carolina says, I saw a condo for sale and the price was cheap, only $60,000. The description stated that it was a one quarter share and that you get to use it for 13 weeks of the year. 
There were yearly maintenance fees, but it didn't say how much. And I'm just wondering, is this a type of timeshare? Don't worry. I have no interest in buying it. I've just never <laughs> heard of this thing. Yeah, this is a um, a different type or wrinkle to timesharing. It has much lower sales costs for the promoters when you're selling a condo unit four times instead of having to sell it 50 times. Generally, uh, as the poster said, you get to use 13 weeks. Generally, you get to use 12 weeks. They have four weeks uh, down through the year for maintenance and repairs. But regardless, you are buying something that uh, has a little more overhead to it, uh, not a lot, and it allows somebody to have less at risk in owning a second home. The issue comes any time with a quarter share, some of them will be an eighth share, is that when you go to sell, the market is less fluid and is not a broken market like timeshares are, the normal timeshares, but still a higher risk venture that you could lose a meaningful amount of money or have difficulty selling your quarter share at a later date. And you also don't have good control over what happens with expenses. So it's not the terrible, terrible event of buying a timeshare, but it does have significantly more risk than buying a standalone property that you own completely. Joel? Clark Michael in California says, I'm 25 years old, saving for a house. I currently have $10,000 saved and want to invest it in a CD to get a higher rate of interest. Uh, in searching around, I found a website called Linus, and they offer a really high APY. Have you heard of Linus, and is it safe to put my money there? Yes, and they must be promoting themselves pretty well because we've had a fair amount of questions about them. And this is not anything like a CD or a savings account. You are an investor and you have clear market risk that you could lose some or all of your money. So the return being offered, uh, have you seen, Joel, what they're promising right now? I think it's 4.5%. Let's see. You are exactly right. So as they say, earn up to 4.5%, but it is not anything like putting money in a CD or savings account. This is a completely different kind of venture. Fred is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Fred. Hey, Clark. I'm to thank, first of all, you, Tim, and Joel for everything that you, that you do. Thank you. Um, just have a quick question for you. My, my, my wife is an authorized user on our three credit cards. Um, and, and, you know, I've followed everything that you've ever said. I've been listening for about 10 years. But how do I get her her own cards if she's a stay-at-home wife when they ask for an in income? Like, what do you do with that question? All right, that is a great question. That has tripped up a lot of people. But do you know on a credit card application, there's a second part they ask, which is other sources of income or other family income or whatever. I forget exactly the ex typical legal wording for that. So okay. she can reply, um, rely on and reply with an answer based on household income for that oh, okay. because you're part of the same household. 
So the first part is about basically what's she earning as a W-2 employee or a 1099 employee, neither of which she's got income. But if you do the other income and you're not even required to state sources, you're just, um, you know, under penalty of perjury, you're saying that really is your other sources of income, household income. That's what gives her the trigger of the income that would allow her to qualify for her own card in her own name. Okay, that's perfect. Okay, I think that was uh, everything I needed. Thank you very much. All right, best to you, and it's really great that both of you have your own credit because of all the things that can go wrong when only one does have credit in his or her name. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas to me so you can keep more of what you have. Our crew at Clark Deals is gearing up for an incredibly different Christmas shopping season. Several weeks ago, I told you about how coronavirus had amplified and accelerated trends that had been happening the three prior Christmas selling seasons, and that this year was going to be very different, if you care about what things cost, than any prior Christmas shopping season we'd ever experienced. And there are a couple of things about it that are going to annoy you. So let me just go straight to those. Most people don't even like to think about Christmas shopping until after Halloween. This year, that's going to cost you. It's going to eat into your wallet. In fact, I want you to figure out who's been naughty or nice now. Because the middle of October this year is going to be a key, maybe the key, money-saving moment for shopping for Christmas. Amazon is going to have two prime days back-to-back, October 13th and 14th. And Amazon Prime Day is usually reserved for summertime when people really aren't shopping a lot. But the pandemic disrupted shopping patterns so much and Amazon had inventory troubles this summer and uh, reliability problems that they canned their traditional Prime Day. So instead, it's still called that, but it's really all about Christmas shopping and trying to get people to front-load Christmas shopping. And as I shared with you weeks ago, other retailers had already made this decision. Home Depot did that, uh, very first national retailer to do so, front-loading bargains for Christmas and spreading them out over a two-month period. And Walmart, shortly after that, announced that they were spreading things out, not even going to be open on Thanksgiving, which is very unusual for Walmart. And October and November are going to be the whole action on discounting for Christmas. And the October, mid-October period is going to be key. The other will be Thanksgiving week. And there will be other sales 
from after the mid-October window through Thanksgiving week where there will be deals. December is going to be very expensive to shop, particularly anything online. And that's because the massive shipping surcharges that the FedEx and UPS people are putting in place for December that's going to make it uneconomic for any retailer to offer you any deals at all for anything that involves delivery. In fact, you're going to see a big push in December for people to do um, who want to buy online to do curbside pickup. You may even see something that Sam's Club has been experimenting with, where Sam's Club is now on many items testing two price points, both cl- claiming, you know, the delivery claiming no fee for delivery but at a higher price than the same item if you do curbside pickup so they're already spreading the price which means free shipping is not free if the price is higher for the item being delivered than the item for pickup so these are the key trends but please don't miss the opportunity if you can afford to shop. I mean, if you're if you're tapped out, if you're in the 60 million Americans who at some point this year have been unemployed and money's really, really a problem, there are other ways you can celebrate Christmas other than things and don't feel that that's something you got to do is go spend money. But if you are okay financially, know that your wallet will go a lot further if you pay attention to this year's calendar for bargains that will be so different than we've experienced before in this accelerating trend. One other thing from Amazon that got just booed in the marketplace of ideas like I can't believe. Um, Amazon's Ring subsidiary announced a new in-home drone. The in-home drone, people, tech writers, uh, ordinary consumers, people have been just trashing Amazon for this thing. So uh, I got to tell you, there's actually a reason that this drone makes sense. Because it sounds like you are voluntarily invading your own privacy, allowing a drone to fly around in your home. So let me give you the reason why this is not nuts. So burglar alarms are a nuisance for the police. Because depending on whose data you believe, the number may be as high as 99.7% of burglar alarm calls are false alarms. So it's the lowest of all low-priority calls for the police because they know they're wasting an officer's resources almost 100% of the time. And so when there is a real emergency or a real burglary, the burglars go undetected because by the time a police officer might ever show up, they're long gone. So, in fact, there are police departments now that require that you verify there's actually an intruder at a property before it'll be put in for an officer call. So 
the idea of the drone, let's say your ring burglar alarm goes off, the drone remotely follows a, a course that you have already set for it, can fly around inside your home, verify there's nobody in it, it will only fly for a maximum of five minutes, it only needs about a minute to survey and make sure there's not a burglar inside the house, goes back to its base, it eliminates false alarm calls, and we give a higher priority in the case, hey, yeah, there really is an intruder there. So I know I'm the only person in America who found a positive reason for the Ring drone that will be, I think it's going to be 250 initial retail. But there you have it. That's why I make a case for it instead of against it. It's time for your questions for me that you posted. Producers Kim and Joel alternate. Whose turn is it? That would be me. And this is from Byron in Kentucky. Byron says, Clark, what do you think about the NFL virtual crowd noise? And do you wish that they would let you control it? (laughs) It's three weeks into the season and depends on the stadium how well they're handling the fake crowd noise. I actually don't mind the fake crowd noise if they get it right. Um, It just has not been really done well generally. But what has surprised me is now the third weekend of the season, I've really learned to enjoy this weirdo season of the NFL again and was at the edge of my seat. Actually, I was pacing on Sunday, just pacing all around. Um, Sunday's the day I generally take off from my normal exercise routine, but yesterday's exciting games messed that up for me, and uh, I was pacing like normal. It's weird on a punt, though, when you see the stands, even in stadiums that are allowing light capacity, when you see virtually no one in the stadium. But what I have realized three weeks in the NFL has been for years more than I recognized a television event more than an in-person event. Joel? Clark, Virginia in Florida says, I live in a gated condo community in Seminole County, Florida. Our HOA closed both of our pools in March, and they've kept our pools closed in addition to our tennis courts. They said that the HOA attorneys advised them that COVID waivers are not worth the paper they're written on and are afraid the community will get sued if somebody gets COVID. Meanwhile, our HOA dues are $427 a month, and they've provided no amenities and no refund or reduction. Is this legal? How can they get away with it? And is there anything that I can do about this myself? So what you do in a situation like this is you organize your neighbor's and come up with a slate to run for office to take over the HOA. That if an HOA, out of fear of the potential of all of you being sued because of coronavirus, if you feel that the existing board structure is way too fearful and is ruining the quality of life in the community, particularly at a time where so many people are at home and you really want people to be able to get in those pools and use the amenities, it would require you to look through your HOA documents and see if there is a procedure to recall board members or when the next election cycle is and run a pro-amenities slate 
you know, they, it's not like it's a bunch of impersonal people. It's your neighbors that made this decision on the basis of what the lawyers told them. And you don't like it, get involved and change the organization. Kim? Garrett in Georgia says, Clark, I'm traveling to a destination that requires me to submit a test result with no more than 72 hours from my departure date. I have a short time window. Do you have any recommendations on how to find a place to do such a test? Call the airline you're traveling on if you're flying. And generally, the airlines have been coming up with their own uh, outlets for you to be able to get testing done 72 hours less or less before travel, where the results will be ready before you travel. This has been a big issue with Hawaii, where with Hawaii, tourism is reopening, but it does require the 72-hour test rule. And hopefully you'll be able to use one of those protocols to get your rapid test done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Beth is with us on the Clark Howard Show, and Beth you have an obscure version of an IRA I get very, very few questions about, if ever. Well, I'm, I, thank you for taking my call, and um, I thought you would be the go-to guy to try and help me figure out what to do with this so I don't lose what I have. And I just I haven't started taking any money out from the retirement account. It's a SEP IRA, and um, it, so it's not been taxed. And um, but the interest that I've received over the last year has been eighteen point three percent, so that's been really good. Not really interest. You mean what the return on what, it over what the last the year? The return, yeah. right? What I've made off of the, my money. Sure. But I don't want to risk losing it because the market can go wherever. And um, so I was just wondering where the safest place would be where I should put it and have to pay tax on it when I draw it out. Obviously. Right. So as a SEP IRA, you're, you can have it in any investment with the company you have it with. So it doesn't okay. have to be in, uh, are you in an all stock kind of portfolio right now? Well, I'm 30, 37% bonds and 63% stocks. Okay. So at, um, at your age, you still want to have stock exposure and you still have the risk from time to time that you will see the account shrink because it you're how old again 63 so your expected lifespan now is into your early 80s easy right you know, average mm -hmm. and so between now and then inflation is your worst enemy not a short-term decline in the stock market 
So, you know, we're going to have correction in the stock market a few times over the years you'll have this money. We might have what's called a bear market where the market declines 20% or more. The decision of the mix of money you have in that SEP should be made more based on what would keep you from sleeping at night. Because I'm not, I'm not at all uncomfortable with the mix you have. It's almost a standard 60-40, um, right. which is considered to be a balanced portfolio. But you said to me you're worried about losing some of this money. Well, right, because it's, it's the only money that I have. My husband has money, and so, I mean, with what he has, we're fine. But, you know, this is my little bit, my pot of money, so it's like I didn't know if I could trans- roll it over to a, uh, an IRA that would be um, secured, or I, t- I had read about, like, a, some form of money market where... So money can- market, yeah, yeah, I mean, you can go in a variety of money market choices inside your SEP. You don't need to move it to an IRA, a SEP is just a version of an IRA it can stay there and if you're if what you fear more than anything else is the value of the account declining from where it is then you can go all the way into something like a simple money market fund and you won't lose any money but you'll make like nothing on it it'll stay pretty much the value it is today right there was one that I had read about where um, any money that is made on it could be reinvested, and so my risk would only be what my investment would be, but my my base dollar would, would still be secure. Okay, so that is a version of an annuity, because um, and annuities are generally not something I advise inside an IRA, but you do have strategies you could follow with the money. How soon... Do you want to start withdrawing any of this money? Well, like I said, the necessity of drawing anything out at this time isn't even needed. Okay, so this is all like your fear of loss. Right, right. So normally I would not get this specific on an investment, but I am in this case. I'd like you to go in, take all the money in it, and go in... uh, Which company is this with, I should ask you? Vanguard. All right. So go in the Vanguard Target Retirement Fund 2020, and they will manage that for you as if you are a current year retiree. And so it won't be zero risk, but it will be the appropriate risk for your life moving forward. And I'm much more comfortable with you doing that and taking maybe a little hit here and there in a down year, because the long-term, since it's not money you need today, the long-term benefit to you is too strong versus uh, basically going into a crouch position where the money you have now is all the money you're going to have, and then inflation will be your enemy over the next 20 years, not your friend. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.